Welcome to the Rainbow Asylum Podcast. This is an audio-based resource for anyone interested in learning more about the challenges faced by LGBTQ asylum seekers in America. Our goal is to raise awareness on the issue to inspire action and change. Hi everyone, this is Joy. Before listening to the podcast, please stop now and take a few minutes to complete our pre-test survey. This can be accessed in the podcast description or in the show notes of each episode. It would help us greatly if you did this before listening. But without further ado, here is our episode introduced by Grace. This episode will focus on the history of LGBTQ plus asylum seekers. We will be providing a brief introduction to the, to the subject with a macro focus on exploring the questions of what asylum is, how asylum is impacting LGBTQ plus people, and why this community of people are seeking asylum. So before we start, we wanted to emphasize that we are all MSW graduate students from Michigan State University, and we have never personally experienced what LGBTQ plus asylum seekers in America have experienced, as none of us have been refugees before. And all of our knowledge um, throughout this series of podcasts are research and interview based. So I'm going to turn it off to Chelsea so she can provide us with some definitions that will be important to our conversation, as well as a brief um, amount of history. So to start out with, I want to spell out what the acronym LGBTQ plus stands for. So this is a population that incorporates several subpopulations, which include um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning people. And then the plus represents other people in the community, which might be people who are asexual, somewhere on the, on the spectrum, and pansexual people, um, as well as other identities that I haven't mentioned. It's a very large umbrella term that involves a lot of different communities so it's important to keep that in mind. However, when we're talking about asylum claims, quite often they're mainly focused on the categories of um, sexual orientation or gender identity, so people who are lesbian or gay or people who are trans. And quite often we end up focusing in terms of sexual orientation on people who are gay because um, from the research that we've done People who identify as lesbian often will attempt to seek asylum under the category of being a woman versus being a lesbian woman just because that's a more common path that's more easily understood by the general population and by the asylum judges that people are trying to uh, get to approve their asylum cases. So the other important words that we kind of need to define are this refugee and asylum. Seekers. So these words, we're going to kind of group them together when we're talking about it because oftentimes the process is kind of similar and there's not a lot of research that delineates out the two terms, but it is important to understand that there are differences. So refugees are people who are outside of the United States who are seeking protection because they have suffered persecution or fear that they will suffer persecution persecution due to race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. 
So the LGBTQ plus community falls under that membership in a particular social group part of that definition. Asylum seekers are people who are inside the U.S. or at a port of entry who are seeking protection for those same reasons because they have suffered persecution or fear they will suffer persecution due to their membership in a particular group, due to their race, their religion, their nationality, or their political opinion. So there are also some key differences in the way that asylum seekers versus refugees are treated in the U.S. Refugees actually get work permits right away, whereas asylum seekers have to wait 180 days from the time of filing their asylum claim in order to get a work permit. So it's just important to think about those distinctions as well when we're thinking about this overall system. So let's go back in time a little bit to 1990 and the first asylum case, which was Tobaso Alfonso, who he was a gay man from Cuba who sought asylum in the United States. His asylum claim was granted by an immigration judge, but then was appealed by the Immigration and Naturalization Services because this was the first time that this had happened. It had never happened before that a gay person had said, hey, look, I'm part of this group and I deserve asylum because I'm being persecuted. The appeal was dismissed and holding of deportation was granted, but it was not established as an asylum precedent. So what that means is that the asylum cases still had to be granted on a case-by-case basis for LGBTQ plus people. It's, in my opinion, slightly surprising that this asylum case got granted um, because at that point in time in 1990, there were still some states in the United States that criminalized being LGBTQ+. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, I'm going to pause and see if there are reactions from the audience of my (laughs) fellow podcast hosts. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, looking at this first case specifically, it was interesting because I read a little bit about it too. And it just seems kind of like, like, there, you know, the government was like, I don't, we don't know what to do with this. <laughs> Hence the, the final result. But yeah, it is interesting that that happened in 1990. It does seem, I mean, the decision was not like perfect, but it was a better outcome than I would have thought for that time period. Yeah, for sure. And then we fast forward to 1999 and the, Tobaso Alfonso case is set as a president. Um, so cases, you no longer have to prove that LGBTQ plus identity belongs as a membership of a particular social group anymore. Although you do still have to prove your membership in that group, which, mm-hmm. as we'll continue to talk about, is a major problem for LGBTQ plus people who are seeking asylum. So if we want i think this is a good place to segue into grace kind of talking about why lgbtq plus people are seeking asylum in the u.s in the first place 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Chelsea. So I'm going to be talking about the criminalization broadly of LGBTQ plus identities in other countries. So to start us off, I thought we would start with a story because I think that really conceptualizes what's happening and it's something real that we can grasp onto as an audience. So and I'm sorry if I mispronounce this. It is of Russian dialect and I do not know Russian, so I'm going to probably mispronounce it. But Kahil, um, a gay man from Russia, in this video I watched, noted growing up hating himself and knowing homosexuality was a sin. In this video, which was published by the Center for American Progress, which is a public policy research and advocacy organization in Washington, D.C., um, Kahil recounts his story of coming out to his mother um, and for her in this moment, for her to bring him to her doctor to be quote unquote helped, which of course, this is a heartbreaking scene because it drops implications of conversion therapies, which in the U.S. we see as relatively like not a thing, right? And this is still um, something that was an issue and still is an issue in other countries. And Cahill admits how he feels like he failed his mother for not being able to become straight in this moment. And this was in 2009. He recounted this. And then the video goes on to show a scene where it says in 2013, Cahill met a man that he wanted to marry and that when he tried to do so, his father found out. And as a result, his father committed to the action of searching for him to murder him for many years afterwards. This very real fear of prosecution led Cahill to leave Russia and apply to the United States for asylum. And I just wanted to put that story out there because Cahill is not alone in a story of familial unacceptance and shame. We'll get into it in a in a moment, but it's very common actually for families to to even assist in the abuse of their LGBTQ offspring when they um, find out their sexual orientation or gender identity. So, um, well, I guess before I leave that story, um, does anyone have any reactions to it? I I found it really heartbreaking um, to watch. And we'll note later in our podcast um, the video so that you all can watch it for yourselves. But do we have any reactions? Yeah, like uh, that is crazy. And I wonder how many families actually actively go out and try to kill mm -hmm. their family members simply because they come out and say that they are not straight. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a really amazing story because I have never heard. I mean, I've heard of families you know, disowning their kids, throwing their kids out on the street and say you're on your own because you're LGBTQ, but never to actively go out and try to murder their own kid mm -hmm. because they like someone that is of the same sex as them. Yeah, and it's it's crazy to me because in the U.S., like, we think about U.S. context and coming out is something that you know, at most, like, if you're not in a great situation, then, you know, your family could disown you, which is the worst case, right, possible, and you could be homeless. But, I mean, I don't personally think of, like, there ever being a situation where, you know, like, my, anyone in my family is trying to kill me, you know, like, that's, that's a whole nother thing. So in this 
in this video, Cahill, um, that was his reason for this prosecution for um, becoming a refugee, which is just really sad, but it's something that still happens. Okay, so I guess moving on to broad statistics so we kind of know what we're looking at. So I found this map um, online, which is research-based by, well, it's called the Maps of Countries that Criminalize LGBT People by HumanDignityTrust.org. And basically, it promotes these statistics that 67 countries currently criminalize LGBTQ plus identities across the world. 22 countries um, in Asia, 32 countries in Africa, seven countries in the Pacific, and six countries in the Caribbean and Americas, which actually earlier when I was um, discussing this with my roommate, she pointed out how, you know, what about Europe? And I was kind of confused about that, too. I'm like, okay, maybe did I look at that wrong? And I did not. I just want to put that out there that Europe is not in this list because they don't actively, like, have these criminalization laws that literally, as I'll go into, punish uh, LGBTQ plus people for engaging in homosexual intimate acts. So that doesn't mean that they're accepting by no means, but um, they don't have as severe punishments. And going back to your story Mm -hmm. earlier, Russia is on this list of states that criminalize LGBT. Yeah, yeah. Behavior, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Russia, um, unfortunately, has had a lot of abuse scandals that when I was researching, even just trying to like look at, okay, what do human rights abuses violations look like for LGBTQ plus people across the world? Russia was where a lot of these things are happening, unfortunately. Right. So that's the very sad thing about your opening story is that it's not just this familial Mm -hmm. issue. It's state-sponsored violence on top of the familial unacceptance. Yeah, right. Like, um, I'll go into it in a minute, but there's actual laws that support this from happening. Families from... You know, literally family members will try, you know, to kill or hurt their LGBTQ plus offspring or abuse them. And because of the law supports them, they won't actually get criminalized for doing so, which is really unfortunate and really twisted, in my opinion. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out, Chelsea. So to go into some punishments, um, just for statistical reasons, and also um, we didn't say this in the beginning, but if this is a trigger for you, um, we thank you for um, being interested in educating yourself, but also um, you know yourself, and if this is something you cannot um, listen to without it hurting you, um, please turn off at this point or come back in a few minutes. So some punishments for engaging in homosexual acts. When I was looking into this, I thought it was interesting because I wasn't surprised to see like imprisonment, like imprisonment from one year to life is um, is a thing in 54 countries, you know, and that's a really depressing thing to be like, you know, I wasn't surprised about that. But I was surprised that there's actual death penalties in different countries, um, general death penalty in six countries. And why I say general is because there's other countries, like five countries, that do death by stoning, <laughs> which is crazy. And as well as four countries that engage in torture behavior, 13 countries that have monetary fines, and one country that has a hard labor law. 
So this means basically that when um, a LGBTQ plus person is caught <laughs> or um, even rumored to have engaged in homosexual intimate acts, which it just I'm saying that basically to pertain to same sex sexual relationships, they will be have like an automatic death penalty or torture or have to pay a very large fine or somewhere in the middle. Yeah, without due process usually too, um, which is very depressing. And in terms of these numbers, 38 of these countries criminalize regardless of sex, meaning they don't just criminalize same-sex intimacy between men because that's the most popular, I guess, reason. or That's not the right word, but it's the most prevalent um, to have these criminalizations targeting gay men specifically. Um, and to go a little further on, at least nine countries have sanctioned and have unsanctioned national laws that directly criminalize queer gender expression, specifically targeting, um, as of 2023, uh, transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. So these countries are specifically Tonga, South Sudan, Brunei, Malawi, Oman, Kurat, Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, United Arab Emirates, and Nigeria, which is can be interpreted broadly over the LGBTQ plus population or over subpopulations exclusively. Yeah, so do we have any reactions about that? And then I'll go into an example of what that looks like. Uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering, Grace, what did you mean by unsanctioned national laws? Yeah, so that's a great question, Chelsea. Thank you for asking that. So unsanctioned laws are basically kind of things, actually a lot of laws that exist in Europe that criminalize LGBTQ plus people that aren't on this list as being like countries that, you know, are on this huge list, you know. Basically, those are laws that um, prosecutors or like legislative officials will use like kind of how we see actually in the United States with immigrants. Like it's basically the enforcement of laws that is very tied to bias. So like for an immigrant, you know, ICE, <laughs> how they um, enjoy like taking immigrants in and um, putting them in detention centers for, let's say, um, getting a speeding ticket, right? And they'll define that as being a criminal action. So then they can detain that individual. It's very similar to that. Those are like laws that criminalize LGBTQ plus people for doing things that aren't very, like they're not criminal, if that makes sense. And they apply it like in a way that's like a little shady, if that makes sense. So they use like a small infraction mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily have to do with your status as an LGBTQ plus person. Yeah. And kind of in some ways blow that out of proportion because mm -hmm. of homophobia or transphobia. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I should find an example of this, but like I I could see this as being like um, a transgender person, like being openly themselves in public and perhaps like a police official coming up to them and saying like oh you're you're being too loud or like you know like here's a ticket for this like really stupid stuff like that so that's what i mean by unsanctioned um it's not like 
government sanctions. Like, it's not like explicit, like, okay, if you see this, like, then that's a right to criminalize them. But like, it's something that that they're able to like kind of mold to their bias, Mm. if that makes sense. It's very shady. (laughs) Prosecute some things Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't necessarily prosecute if the perpetrator was perceived to be straight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just find it amazing that a lot of these countries that murder you if you're LGBTQ or they throw you in prison for life if you're LGBTQ or they see it as an actual crime and you have committed. It's funny that all those countries tend to be not America and not Europe, basically. And and it's not not all of them. I don't want to sound like I'm stereotyping and generalizing, Mm -hmm. but it's funny that I just I just wonder if anyone has looked into why it is countries in Africa, in Asia, the Pacific Islands, mm-hmm. Middle East, that have these laws where it's okay to stone somebody to get death because they're gay, and it's okay to murder your own kid because he's gay, but it's not okay to be gay. You know, and, and mm-hmm. it's funny that, you know, like, we don't have those laws. France doesn't have those laws. England doesn't have those laws. Canada doesn't have those laws. Um, but a lot of it is coming from the global south, you know, and, and other areas that, that are far away, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I just wonder how, how did that come to be? How did that develop? I mean, I'm not saying that they all are the same or anything. I'm just, I'm just saying like, why is it those countries? Yeah. Well, and that's an important discussion because to me, like the fact is not that like all these are in these other places. It's just that it's just human rights rhetoric, really, that we see the United States likes to see itself as this beautiful like everyone has rights country and in reality like we like to point our fingers at other places but also um I think and I haven't researched this probably enough but I think it has to do with cultural values as well as tradition so a lot of these countries that engage in these activities like they have different religions and different cultural values um there's this thing which I'll go into about so-called honor killings, and that's what happened with um, um, Cahill. These honor killings are basically murders performed to preserve the community's or family's perception of honor, which are on the rise particularly particularly against gay men. And this is a phenomenon that it's, I think it's very tied to, of course, tradition, but also group think that in these different communities, this is something that, well, first of all, um, all these other countries are very collective oriented communities, right? And there's a lot of group think going on. So like, to them, like, it's not, to us, it's like, you know, what the heck, this sounds awful. Like, why would you murder anybody because of any kind of any reason at all but like it's tied to these core principles of honor and like community not feeling shame you know and the united states is very individualistic in general so we might not yeah that's true have that as much but do you have any thoughts chelsea i think it's just also important to remember that historically we did have similar policies. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, early America. Yeah, sooner than that. Yeah. As I mentioned in the beginning, in the 1990s, there were still laws in place that criminalized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and also we can't forget that we've, the United States um, has colonialized so many countries that many, many of these countries, I assume, like, I don't know, I've never 
been to anywhere in Africa, but they're trying to hold on to their own traditions and kind of that's also why you see like a, in my opinion, right, it's not based on research, but you see a rejection of a lot of like liberal views, right. we say, because um, these countries have been colonialized and they would like to be authentically themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. Understandable. Not trying to defend um, some of these things. Not to say also that these things that happen in different countries, it's not like all of these people think this way. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, for like sure. At all. Yeah. Um, I'm just highlighting some really depressing <laughs> facts and information um, for us. To move on, um, so I wanted to kind of put out an example country just so we can see how this um, criminalization works in a country, like a case study, if you will. So in Nigeria, um, they impose a minimum of a 10 to 14 prison sentence for for LGBTQ plus same-sex relations. So in general, they outlaw all forms of like LGBTQ plus relations and the discussion of LGBTQ plus rights. Specifically, um, we can look at the same-sex prohibition bill, which became a thing on January 7th of 2014, which criminalizes public displays of affection between same-sex couples and restricts the work of organizations defending gay people and their rights, um, which that information was brought to you by um, the Human Rights Watch. But some implications of this law specifically and generally of a country that not only criminalizes um, their queer people, but also criminalizes any discussion of queer identity is, well, first of all, um, I didn't know this, but I found this out researching that Nigeria is the home to the world's um, third largest mass of people living with HIV AIDS, which is connected um, to LGBTQ plus identity historically. And so these laws have the potential to criminalize HIV AIDS prevention and education via advocacy groups, which is a bit unsettling <laughs> in general because it's not only about LGBTQ plus expression and mental health, it's also about physical health and LGBTQ plus people's access to medical care. Okay, so now to talk about more human rights violations. So I found this article, and I'm going to chop up his name um, I apologize. He's a survivor, actually, of torture. His name is Amin Dizabalu. Chelsea, you want to try? I do not, but we will put it in the show notes for you so that you can see how it is spelled yourself so that if you want to okay. look up the story, you may do so. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you, Chelsea. So he was a survivor, actually, of a anti-gay purge in, and I'm going to mess this up again, Chinsia, um, also known as the Chian Republic, which is a republic of Russia. And this happened in actually 2017. So I wanted to point that out because I feel like we think of um, these large abuses happening you know, in years past, because we're so woke and, you know, whatever. But this is 2017, which was not long ago. That was when I was 17. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's only a couple years ago. But anyways, in this instant, 
He was detained, beaten, and forcibly outed to his relatives by the government in a wave of anti-gay propaganda and rhetoric, which um, I don't mean to capitalize on his story because it's in Russia, because I feel like we've been paying attention to Russia a lot, which they do have a lot of issues, but a lot of other countries do as well. But just to point out that um, this is a very real thing that happens, and I and I feel like it's really easy to dehumanize human rights violations and things that happen because we don't want to look at them and we don't want to um, take note of them because that means that we need to be accountable. Yeah. So anyways, it was he was treated very awfully. Yeah. And I just think his story should be heard. Yeah. Do we have any reactions to that? It's kind of a similar case to um, the person we talked about earlier but that he was tortured further. I mean, it would be really, really awful and triggering to hear his story, honestly. I mean, if he Mm -hmm. were to actually come out and start describing his torture, that would be just a bit much. Yeah. It's unfortunate, and I don't really know what to do about it since it's other countries and they are going to think the way they want to think. They're going to, you know what I mean? Like, it's... It would be, it would kind of violate the, for like us to come in and be like, no, you're not supposed to do that. You know, they're like, wait, they're coming in and like colonizing us again and trying to force their ways on us. It's just, I guess it just, the only thing we really can do about this is to prioritize the LGBTQ community when they're coming in Mm -hmm. and running from this kind of stuff. We have to understand what they're going through and, and uh, let them in. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it's our job to... As we'll talk about later um, with asylee cases, it's not our job to be like, please tell us your trauma so we can like decide whether or not to let you in. I think it's just our job to be there for these people who have gone through awful things, you know. Okay, so for the last part, I just want to mention a few other push factors that also including, um, in addition to everything we've mentioned before, kind of make these um, LGBTQ plus people become migrants in in search of asylum. So anti-homo propaganda laws are a huge thing. They promote a culture of abuse towards LGBT people, which we see that a lot in Russia, (laughs) to bring up Russia again. There's a lot of victimization experiences, which these include the experiences of psychological abuse, blackmail, shunning, pressure to participate in conversion therapy, corrective rape, and physical and sexual assault. Basically, these experiences are, these types of abuse are utilized against LGBTQ plus people based on a cycle of violence that is truly driven by social conformity um, within these communities. Uh, Many LGBTQ forced migrants report emotional, verbal, physical, and sexual violence at the hands of their family as well. Yeah, so those are all of the push factors I found while researching, um, which is a lot of depressing information, but I think gives us a good background of why we're seeing these people come to um, not only the United States, but other countries in search of asylum because they've been unfairly prosecuted um, for their identity, something that should be embraced um, and that they cannot change. I think it's quite understandable why people would flee from 
situations like this, if they can. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. That we really need to work on instead of having a culture of immigration where we try to catch the liars and catch the bad guys who are um, trying to get in here illegally or mm -hmm. however else we want to frame it. We need to have a culture of welcoming and understanding that there are people who have gone through some pretty terrible things in their life. Yeah. And we need to uh, do what we can to help. Yeah. Well, amen to that. <laughs> so to conclude... Um, we're your local MSU social workers that believe that just one person can be a light to this messy world. So keep learning, keep advocating for change, and loving our rainbow refugees. This podcast is hosted by the social work students Joy Jennings, Grace Kennedy, Chelsea Middlemiss, and Trisha Washburn as an advocacy project through Michigan State University. Check out the show notes for more information and resources. For questions, please contact rainbowasylumpodcast at gmail.com. That is all one word. Thank you for listening. <laughs>